My name is Laura Dawn, and you're listening to episode number 19 of the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast, featuring my conversation with psychedelic journalist and author of your psilocybin mushroom companion, Michelle Janikian. You know, people being really sure of themselves in this world, in this space, and it confuses me because, I don't know, psychedelics for me... They open me up so much. Well, I'm not sure of anything, but it's like a good thing. The fact that we try to fit something as wild and weird as psychedelics into a neat little box just blows my mind. That doesn't make any sense to me. I'm always like a, you know, I'm the round peg in a square hole. I think if we really want to save lives, like criminalizing the person or the substance isn't the answer. It's compassionate harm reduction. It's treating these people like humans. Lemon techie is my favorite way to consume mushrooms. It is, but okay, so lemon teching is um, cooking your mushrooms essentially before you eat them, just like a ceviche or an aguachile is cooked, like you cook the shrimp or fish with lime juice, citric acid. Um, We do this with mushrooms. You basically grind up your mushrooms, or this is my method that I um, report in Double Blind. As a journalist, Michelle covers psychedelic and cannabis education, harm reduction, and writes about her personal psychedelic experiences as well. She's been featured in Playboy, Rolling Stone, High Times, Double Blind Mag, Psychedelics Today, and more. Now, what I really appreciate about Michelle is that she's genuine and authentic, and she's also stepping out to hold some bolder perspectives. I mean, just wait until you get to the part about recreational heroin use in this interview. But I do feel a lot of spaciousness in the way that she holds her perspective and a really strong willingness to be wrong. And she leans in with a lot of curiosity and open-mindedness. And you know what? That just really resonates with me. Because as you'll hear in this interview, you know, especially talking about recreational heroin use, I mean, even that brings me to my own sort of interesting edge within myself where I definitely, you know, question, should we be talking about this from an ethical standpoint? Like, what if someone reaches out to me after hearing this episode and says, oh, you know what? I went out and tried heroin for recreational use. Um, I mean, I I don't know how I feel about that. I mean, it doesn't feel good. I know that it wouldn't feel great. But then again, education around harm reduction is really important. And it's exactly these kinds of interesting, nuanced lines that we talk about in this episode. And Michelle is really passionate about the healing potential of psychedelic plants and substances and the legalization and destigmatization of all drugs, which really comes through in this interview. And she's also really transparent about what she's still trying to figure out, like within herself, morally and ethically, especially as she builds her online platform and is stepping out as, quote unquote, a psychedelic influencer, which I really think is the most valuable aspect of this conversation. And I also share a couple of short stories about psychedelic journeys that I had in other countries. And then there again, you know, I really contemplated cutting those sections out because I don't want to encourage people to consume illegal substances, especially in countries with really harsh drug laws like Thailand, for example. But I did end up leaving it in because those experiences are near and dear to my heart and they are a part of who I am and experiences that have shaped me. But just a reminder, 
everyone needs to take radical responsibility for their own actions. Okay, so as the title of this podcast is called, What the Heck is Lemon Teching? We get into that in more of like the second half of the interview. And honestly, I'm having a really hard time figuring out what to name each episode when we cover such a diverse range of topics. So if you happen to have any awesome suggestions for that, feel free to hit me up. I mean, feel free to get in touch with me about anything, honestly, as long as, as many of you hear me say, it's delivered from a place of kindness. So in the second part, we dive into more specifics about her book, Your Psilocybin Mushroom Companion, and different effects of different strains, different ways to consume psilocybin, which is where lemon teching comes in. And honestly, throughout this whole conversation, I felt like I was just dropping in with a dear girlfriend that I've known for a really long time. And that's the kind of sweet kindred vibes I just really appreciate about Michelle. All right, so if you wanna learn how to grow your own mushrooms which is a recommendation that Michelle makes in this episode. I highly recommend checking out the Grow Your Own Mushroom course created by the Fungi Academy. And if you go to my website, livefreelauraD.com and click on the resources tab, you'll find a link that will give you a discount to the course. They also have a great course on sacred journey work for journeying safely with psychedelics. And over the next couple of months, I'm going to continue to build out this very valuable resources section on programs that I highly recommend, also free resources like codes of ethics and trip sitting guides. And there will be another really awesome resource coming soon on the resources tab that's all about breathwork that I am so excited to share with you. Okay, so also I still have a few spots left for my microdosing mastermind program. And I have such a great group of people coming together for this. So if you really want to deepen your microdosing practice, learn about all things optimal performance and connect with other leaders and entrepreneurs on the plant medicine path, I highly recommend checking that out and submitting an application. And if you're new to microdosing, you can join my free eight-day microdosing course on the freebies tab of my website, livefreelauraD.com, where you'll also find access to my music playlists for psychedelic journeys and beyond, one of which is a great playlist for microdosing morning flows. And all of these resources, including a link to Michelle's book, will also be included in the show notes. And one last thing I'll say is that it started to pour rain on and off throughout this conversation. So it might sound like mild static, but it's really the healing waters blessing us up. And, you know, I'm still recording this podcast practically outside. So there's that. And I'm going to leave this episode off with a song called Gift by a dear friend of mine, Brandon Mills. Okay, so without any further ado, here is my super sweet conversation with Michelle Janikian. Welcome, Michelle. It's nice to be able to drop in with you like this. I've been really looking forward to this conversation, been following your work, your book that just came out. Just so much congratulations on all that you're doing and offering in the space. Oh, so kind. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Laura. Same to you. It's exciting to just talk to other women in the psychedelic space as well, because there's just not enough of us. So when we connect, I think, you know, fun things happen. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. So I'd love to know, um, how did you get into starting to write about psychedelics? What what led you on this path? Yeah, that's a, a good question. You know, I started writing about cannabis over five years ago. 
And, you know, I'm a consumer, I guess is the easiest answer, right? I'm a cannabis consumer. I've been a psychedelics consumer. I um, didn't really realize it would take me to this kind of crazy professional place, but I'm so honored. And I started writing about cannabis because I was passionate about it. And the same goes for psychedelics. I really felt like the content that's out there was missing something. It's just, it's like just one side of the story. And I felt that there's more sides that need to be told. You know, it's with cannabis, I was um, commissioned often to write, you know, how it's really helpful and medicinal and CBD for this and that, which is great. But it started to feel a little weird. It was just kind of like, well, why are we talking so enthusiastically about cannabis but everything else is like off limits and still bad and stigmatized. Like it just didn't sit right with me. And so I, you know, started to expand my work. I also got requests from editors. Uh, I, I think I've told this story publicly before, but my old editor at Playboy reached out to me a couple of years ago to be like, this cannabis content is great, but do you have experience with other drugs? And I was like, oh my God, so glad you asked. <laughs> and it just kind of opened this door for me to, you know, be myself and be honest about this stuff. I think I do differ from some of the other psychedelic community members where my main focus is harm reduction. Like healing is cool. All this stuff is great, exciting. I love to keep up with the research, but I think my whole mission in writing about psychedelics and other drugs is to just help educate, destigmatize, and provide harm reduction information that I didn't really know existed when I started experimenting with all different types of substances. And so um, yeah, that's how I got into it. Yeah. How, how old are you? I think we might be around the same age. 32, 31. I don't know. Does last year count? I think I'm 32. Right. Okay. So yeah, I'm 37. It's it's just kind of interesting to think about like when, when I started working with psychedelics, you know, in my mid teens and then just how, you know, even two years ago, no one was talking about plant medicine integration, for example. And now you hear it everywhere. It's like becoming part of our common culture, our vernacular. So it's, it is really amazing to see just how rapidly things are evolving. And so yeah, it's nice to see also your your passion and your mission around harm reduction and educating around that. And so much work still needs to be done in that space. But I'm, I'm really curious to ask you about like what you've learned along the way, especially what you've had to face ethically within yourself to really share your story publicly and write very openly around your experiences I think it was on another podcast episode that I heard you saying something along the lines of, you know, people ask you, well, how much to take and what dosage and then or you're you were just sharing like, oh, well, in this journey, I took this much. And then someone reaches out to you and be like, oh, I tried the, you know, candy flipping that you were talking about. And how does that land for you? I mean, how do you take responsibility in that? And how have you evolved and changed in the way that you're holding space as you now are really stepping into this, quote unquote, you know, psychic leadership influencer, which is kind of funny place to, to be. But, you know, I'm curious, like what that evolution is looking like for you. Yeah, it's a great question. You know, this year has been hard, actually, um, just reflecting and making changes and realizing like what doesn't sit right with me also. So and I'm still figuring it out. But like, there's a fine line between providing honest harm reduction information and like encouraging people to use substances. And that, that, like, I think that that's like, 
I just want people to be educated to make decisions for themselves. But the problem with Instagram and the whole influencer culture is that like we're constantly like making recommendations for other people, like on our posts and in our photos. And it's all like, oh, you know, eat this and sleep more and self-care and best life. And like, yeah, that's that's helpful. But like with the drug harm reduction stuff, it turns into this thing where like, is it like candy flipping is great and everyone should try it? Or is it like you've already decided to candy flip and you are researching to see the safest way? And so I don't know, I'm still figuring it out, frankly. Like I want to provide this information for people because, you know, I've gotten into dangerous and reckless situations with psychedelics, especially mixing them with other drugs, right? And so when you start providing that kind of information for people and they like how you never know how they're going to take it I guess and I have to just trust people I think that's also another problem like I see in this like drug media world is like we don't trust the readers or the audience to like think for themselves for some reason and we have to like give them all the information and and you know as much as like education is important I do want people to to make their own decisions. And if candy flipping sounds too intense for them, like that's an okay decision. Like I'm not here saying that everyone should go out and do it. But if you're curious and, you know, you don't have like a heart condition, it's probably going to be safe and it can be interesting. And like, I think everyone should have the right to expand their mind in that way or to alter their consciousness or frankly to get high or like whatever. Like I'm not judging you. Like however language you use, whatever you do, I just, you know, as long as you're not hurting other people and like pushing this on other people, it's like up to you. But yeah, I mean, ethically, I think I'm like evolving a little lately where I'm struggling to put so much of that content or like struggling to find what's the appropriate way to provide that content. I'm figuring it out um slowly trying to figure out like other things that I can share that are helpful for people out there um it's a fine line we all have to walk in this community and and I think that as long as we're reflecting on it and and trying our best like we're all going to make mistakes but um are we okay with like admitting them and and going back and changing you know our stance it's harder it doesn't look good for your public image or like whatever but it's really important and I actually really respect the folks in the community who can you know admit when they were wrong um more than anything because there's so much just uh you know people being like really sure of themselves in this world in this space and it confuses me because I don't know psychedelics for me they open me up so much where I'm not sure of anything, but it's like a good thing, you know, in a way, because I don't know, I'm not a very dogmatic person, but I never was. I don't think it has anything to do with the psychedelics I take. I'm a very open-minded person and, and I'm willing to listen to both sides and it can be annoying because I can be a little contrarian, I think, to some folks. But I think it's important, um, especially as this space becomes more mainstream and spread to more people that we just have different voices, that we have discourse. Doesn't all, we don't always have to agree. Um, mm-hmm. It's tricky. It's tricky to be a public figure in this space. And I'm glad you created this podcast to give people a platform to talk about it because you don't always get to hear about how difficult being in the public eye can be. You usually just see how like fun and beautiful it looks, but 
it's challenging all the time. Yeah. I feel like it's kind of like walking an interesting tightrope where people have a lot of differing opinions. And I actually really appreciate your perspective where I feel like it's a little more relaxed. I think I heard you use the word like chill a number of times on another a podcast episode where you're like, yeah, it's just like, you know, just be chill about it, you know? And I actually really appreciate that. It's like, hold it lightly, hold your beliefs lightly, go into your experience without it. I mean, even anything can be taken to an extreme. You can stress out about set and setting, you know, and there are a lot of people in, in the space. Yeah. And there's a lot of people in the space, especially with the direction of the medicalization of psychedelics, which I'm really curious your perspective on that, where for me, you know, I entered the portal of my psychedelic experiences through recreational use, quote unquote, recreational use. And it was profoundly impactful. And I think that you can have a life changing experience with psilocybin at a festival on the dance floor just as much as you can wearing an eye mask in a, you know, therapist's office. So I'm curious your perspective on the the movement towards medicalization. Um, I, I feel like you have a very open, broad-minded approach to this as long as there's harm reduction. But in this question, you know, what what criticism have you received from people? Have you received criticism from, from different people who hold more firm stances in the psychedelic space that it needs to be this way or that way for it to be sort of therapeutic, for example? Yeah. Yeah. So that's like such a good um, way to put it because yeah, when I was first getting into this space and writing about it, I was pretty close about medicalization. I knew that psychedelics were powerful because I had really powerful experiences that, you know, really opened my mind, really helped me like love myself, get over some really difficult stuff without the intention to do that whatsoever. And so I knew that, and it was kind of this funny realization when I started like really digging into all the research and interviewing experts. And it was like, oh, wow, like, like it made sense to me that psychedelics could be used for PTSD or depression because I had experienced such powerful, like, you know, powerful mind altering, mood altering experiences with them. And so I was like, oh yeah, sure. And I imagine that's what the researchers also, when this work was started like 50 years ago, they were like, oh yeah, like <laughs> this could be used for something like my, you know, my most difficult patients, right? And so for me, there's not a huge difference. It's kind of weird to me that the language now is that psychedelics can only be healing if you're intentional and you do all these things. It's like, well, when I took them like totally haphazardly, they were still really powerful. I've also taken them in situations where I had a lot of anxiety because it wasn't right. Like the set and setting I was with all these weird dudes or like whatever, right? Like we have been in both kinds of situations and it was like, oh my God, I had to call my brother to take me home because this is not right. Um, I think medicalization is really important and exciting and I... Um, think the research is so interesting. And I really hope that it becomes a legal option for people because our therapy system, it does need help. Um, I think it really needs a whole rethinking. Just plopping psychedelics on top of the current like psychiatric model is questionable. I think we could really reframe how we approach mental health totally. And that's like an exciting bit of how maybe psychedelics can really change our future um, as a species. 
At the same time, when we have medicalization without decrim legalization, regulation of these substances, these plants mostly that have been, you know, criminalized for half a century, that does not sit right with me. Like, I, I really believe that we have, we need both um, for this to work. Um, and so while I applaud medicalization, I really don't believe it's the only way. Um, I also really don't believe, like, you know, there's just so many people who therapy isn't right for them. Maybe that's like, stigma but I think for some folks like that's just not how they want to heal and so if we only allow psychedelics in this little rigid box of medicalization I think it's like gonna leave a lot of people out and I think also you know if we're still like arresting people and all this kind of stuff for these medicines but then like giving them to affluent people who can afford the therapy like it does not make any sense to me Criticism-wise, I mean, yeah, when I first started writing about this stuff, I had publicists for really big psychedelic organizations that I won't name, but pretty obvious, there's not a lot of them, really upset with me for the way that I was portraying MDMA in this one Playboy article like two years ago. And it was like, and I and I had this whole thing on, and the article was, um, it was called Deck the ha- Halls with Boughs of Molly. <laughs> and uh, I didn't write the title, actually. Often at Playboy, like my editor will come up with a catchier title. But it was just about how maybe MDMA during the holidays could like help you get through any like angst or holiday depression, like taking them with your family or your friends. Like perhaps that that was like the answer to the, the old there's like an old Ram Das quote where it's like think you're enlightened try going to spend a week with your family and then like let me know what you think and it's like it's so true it's like it's so hard to go home and spend time with your folks when I don't know it just depends but anyway so you know they thought that I was uh, encouraging people to use drugs and not in their you know very rigid medicalization model way and so they were really unhappy with how the piece came out even though I still think it's fine um and so that really kind of opened my eyes to like what this world was and and how I wasn't really already fitting into it um and I've always been kind of an out-of-the-box thinker like the fact that we try to fit something as wild and weird as psychedelics into a neat little box just blows my mind that doesn't make any sense to me I'm always like a, you know, I'm the round peg in a square hole or whatever like I just doesn't I just I'm, I'm always like I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, so I think that conversation is evolving. And I do understand why the medicalization model only was the narrative and still kind of is for the mainstream, because the mainstream doesn't feel super safe about these substances being legalized and anyone can use them. And oh my God, people will be jumping out of buildings and in front of cars. And I think what we really still need is more education. What psychedelics are like? What kind of people use them? More people coming out of the psychedelic closet, you know, professionals, the drug closet in general. Dr. Carl Hart's book has been a big inspiration to me. Um, Drug use for grownups. He's not a big psychedelic person. He used heroin recreationally and he's trying to destigmatize that. And he's meeting a lot of pushback from the media. And it's kind of hard to watch. I feel bad for him. And I'm still trying to like, you know, rally behind him in any way that I can. But so can we pause on that for a second? Wait, you had me at a recreational heroin use. Let's talk about that for a second. Sure. 
Yeah. What do you want to say? There, I think there is a, a big misunderstanding around the statistics of how many people get addicted to opioids. Yeah. Um, anything you want to share about that? Let's just talk about that for a sec. Um, well, yeah. In Dr. Carl Hart's book, he's been a drug addiction researcher at Columbia for like 25 years. And what he's found through his research is that about 20% of people get addicted to substance, to the substance, whether it's heroin, cocaine, meth, like about 80% of people can use and stop or use recreationally and not use every day, not let it take over their lives, right? And 20% of people can't. I don't have an answer to why that is. I mean, there's a lot of answers like trauma, like poor quality of life, like unemployment, you know, racial disparities. There's so much to it that it's so much. So when we blame the drug or the person, we're missing the point. It's it's like societally, we need to fix a lot of problems. Um, you know, like unemployment is probably a bigger uh, risk factor for getting addicted to something, I think, than, than trying a substance. I'm a person who in my earlier days, like, I don't really use a lot of drugs outside of like mushrooms and some psychedelics lately. But, you know, in my early 20s, my late teens, I tried a bunch of drugs. I tried cocaine. I did heroin. I did it all. I didn't get addicted. I stopped. But I'm also coming from a place of privilege. I'm a white woman from a middle-class background. I was in college. I have parents that support me no matter what. And it was just like not a very big deal for me. Not everyone has that. That's the problem. I had the emotional support system. Talking about my privilege and like talking about my use is weird because yeah, I don't I don't want to encourage anyone to go out and try that. Like, you know, but at the same time, like we really need to destigmatize all drug use if we really want to make progress, if we really want to make a societal change, like it can't just be psychedelics, even though they are less addictive, right? They might have more positive benefits, but at the end of the day, to me, they're all still drugs and I want to end the war on drugs. <laughs> it's so interesting, even just like my own thought process as you're talking about this, because you know, there's not much that I've heard that my immediate thought reaction is like, "Ooh, I really don't know how I feel about that." You know, um, talking about safe, safe space for heroin use, for example, like, could there be a benefit of even exploring that? Is there more detriment in even planting that seed of possibility in someone's mind? How much responsibility would I, you know I feel in even just releasing a topic like this? Um, so it's it that right there was like, oh, that's interesting. That's where I would definitely find my own edge, but still like really feeling passionate about um, holding space for all the tricky conversations. What was his the author's name, the drug use for grownups? Carl Hart, Dr. Carl Hart. Yeah, he wrote a, another book um, called High Price a few years ago. You know, he talks. He's a public speaker. He was just on um, The Tonight Show with Trevor. What's his name? The new Tonight Trevor Show. Noah. Yeah, yeah. Like last night, oh gosh, I think. I'm going to check it out. Um, yeah. So you're witnessing him receive a lot of criticism and you're feeling like um, rallying behind him? Well, you know, I think a lot of people who interview him, they focus on the recreational heroin use thing and they just ignore everything else. And like, you know, a lot of people, right. They have a history or they have a family member or many friends or loved ones, you know, that they've lost or that to either addiction, like they lost that person died. I have lost many friends to overdose 
or that, um, you know, they just lost that person. They're still alive, but they lost them to the, to the addiction. Right. And so they can't see past their emotional tie to this issue to like the numbers or to the reality. The reality is if we legalized heroin and it was all tested, way more people would die from overdoses than they do now. If the, the reality is if we provided safe consumption sites, you know, people wouldn't be spreading HIV and, and other bloodborne diseases from sharing needles and doing these things. People would die less. I think if we really want to save lives, like criminalizing the person or the substance isn't the answer. It's compassionate harm reduction. It's treating these people like humans and it's regulating all drugs. Mm-hmm. That's my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I guess it's anyway. a really a fundamental stance also in in support of cognitive liberty that people are, you know, we fundamentally all need to have the right to choose how we alter our own state of consciousness. Yeah, 100 percent. I mean, that's Dr. Carl Hart's like thesis in the book. Um, our right to liberty and happiness is in the Declaration of Independence. Mm-hmm. And yet we, um, you know, just ignore it all mm-hmm. the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Well, you are the author of Your Psilocybin Mushroom Companion. Uh, Congratulations. I know it's not easy getting a a book to completion in publication. Um, What was the the most surprising thing that you would say you learned in that, uh, in terms of like the research that you've done in that space? Hmm. Such a good question. I mean, I don't know. The, the, The thing about my book is there's nothing that surprising in it, I guess. It was kind of hard to um, you know, do the whole book tour, publicity tour thing, even though actually I didn't get to go on a physical tour because my book was released. And then like two months later, the world shut down. But, um, I think that if you're a regular mushroom or psychedelic user, the most of the information in my book, you already know, you know, it was more for newcomers, like that didn't really realize how powerful psychedelics can be and the importance of just like prepping a comfortable place to do them and just thinking of a couple things in advance, like maybe, you know, any food you want after, buy before you start tripping, like really kind of basic stuff, you know, trip with your close friends or, you know, get used to smaller doses before taking higher doses, Um, get used to the psychedelic space, maybe before taking them at a festival on the dance floor, not that you shouldn't, but I think that you should know how it feels before you do it in front of so many people, my personal opinion, but I'm actually quite shy. So that's just like where I'm coming from. Um, but I guess, you know, the first few chapters of the book is more like how psilocybin works. And I did learn a lot of really cool stuff, um, you know, that I've heard like you talk about like brain flexibility and creativity and, uh, you know, divergent and convergent thinking and these kinds of things and, and what the, um, studies are showing on how psilocybin specifically is like helping the brain be more flexible. And, and I think that's all really interesting. And I've had a lot of like old heads, you know, like older psychonauts be like, yeah, I knew most of the advice in your book, but I learned so much from the first half on like, uh, you know, how psilocybin works and what people use it for. I have a chapter on ceremonial use where I, You know, I interviewed um, a man who lives in the Mazatec community in T. Garcia Flores. Um, 
And, you know, he taught me a bunch of really interesting stuff, just trying to get beyond the like Gordon Watson, Maria Sabina narrative, because it was told so many times and there's just so much wrong with it. And (laughs) I wanted to just do something a little bit original. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's there's a lot in the book for folks looking, you know, for resource on how to use psychedelics, especially mushrooms safely. And I think a lot of my, um, you know, promotion has been more of like, teaching or telling psychonauts that this book is out there. So then when they have curious friends and family members who are like less experienced, they'll be like, oh, wait, so don't listen to me. Like, here's this book, read it on your own time. Let me know what you think. And then maybe we can, you know, start working together in this space. And um, I think that's working. You know, people are really, they're reaching out to me. They really found it really helpful. And um I'm so glad. It's such an honor to have, you know, help them through that journey. I also get the, you know, occasional message where they read my book and they went into like a moderate dose space and they got scared, but they were able to calm themselves down because they could like hear my voice in their head to like, and I was there like helping them, which has been such a powerful thing to hear. And like, you know, they listen to a few podcasts with me and they read the book and, and then I, and then like some part of my essence is like helping them through the journey. And that's been like a really powerful thing for me to digest, especially if I'm like on mushrooms, I'm like, Oh my God. Wow. (laughs) But it's, it's beautiful. Yeah. (laughs) I'm such a lucky person, honestly. Mm. What kind of recommendations do you make in the book for people who are going through challenging experiences? I have a whole chapter on, you know, ways to deal, basically. It's a lot of the basic stuff that, you know, you learn if you do like Zendo project training, but, you know, deep breaths, right? Connect with your breath and your body. Um, Maybe get up and take your shoes off and touch your feet to the bare ground. Maybe walk around or move around or get your tambourine out. Like I recommend people like maybe set their space up a little like music, art supplies, in a way, I call them distractions. You know, it's like activities for tripping, especially like more low, moderate dose spaces when you can still move around and talk and stuff. Um, and, and you know, it's not necessarily a distraction, but it's like a way to move through challenging energy, perhaps. Like maybe you want to get that journal out and just start coloring. Like it could be crayons. It could be a mess. Like it doesn't really matter what it looks like. It's more about like working through some energy and, and letting some stuff out. Like I think a lot of people maybe like dance, music, change the music, change the lighting, change the room, go from inside to outside. Like it's I think it's basic stuff, but I think it's really helpful for folks to have it all in one place and to like just read it all together. And then if they are really struggling, um, maybe they remember it. Maybe they go straight to the book because it's like a physical thing that they have and that's like easy. But I know reading can be really hard. So uh, (laughs) I would understand if that's too difficult, but yeah, stuff like that. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting because, you know, we have this whole sort of category of what we're calling trip sitters now, but like how different is a trip sitter really to a guide? Yeah. I mean, gosh, I guess I struggle with this, right? Because I think the line does kind of get fuzzy in this kind of underground world. Like what makes a trip sitter different than a guide, right? I mean, maybe a guide would have training, but not necessarily. And trip sitters can have training nowadays. I think 
in my opinion, like a trip sitter might just be like a friend or loved one of yours that's just like with you for it, right? And a guide or facilitator might be someone that you hire and you pay to do this work for you. Now, that's not always necessarily the case. That's just an easy way for me to think about it. Um, I'm not a per I'm not a person that really does a lot of facilitated work. I do some group work pre-pandemic that was really powerful for me. And there were different types of, you know, in a group situation, we had like medicine people, we had singers, we had the yoga teacher, like it was a combination of, I think everyone was both a trip sitter and a guide. Um, yeah, that's a tricky one. Right. And like how much, no. <laughs> how much of the training do you really feel? I mean, there's like, I mean, right now, especially in the psychedelic space, there's a lot of conversation around facilitation and, and training programs. Yeah. So what's your take on like, how much training do people really need? Do we really think that we need to have a degree in psychology to train as, you know, a psychedelic guide? What's your perspective on that? I know I struggle with this one. Like, I'm not really sure. I think it depends on the person, what they're really looking for. Like the, the person who wants to use the substance, right? Like, I think that if you're someone with like um, a pretty serious trauma or mental health or addiction history, like maybe you do want to seek out a guide with more training, like maybe with a counseling degree, maybe not necessarily though, right? I think and this is where I hear, this is um, a tricky part where I've been, I actually just wrote an article on how to vet a psychedelic guide. It'll be in the summer issue of Double Blind um, in a few months, um, the print mag. And um, so I had a lot of folks who I interviewed for this story tell me like, listen, like actually having a psychologist like might not be necessary for a lot of people you know, getting a graduate degree is a pretty big barrier of entry. There's a lot of really compassionate psychedelic guides out there that don't have a counseling degree, right? And they're great. And then there's other guides out there who abuse people um, under the influence who are, you know, they have an LSW or like they're social workers or psychologists or whatever, and they abuse their power. So it really doesn't mean that they're a good and ethical guide. So I think that you as a person who's seeking out a guide need to really just go with someone who feels right. And like I said, if you do have like deeper intentions, you have a deeper trauma or mental health history, perhaps you do want to seek out someone like with some trauma training, like are they trauma informed? Do they um, have any training with spiritual emergence and emergency um, or, or are they just as soon as you know, things go wrong. I mean, I mean, I don't know. I think that, um, yeah, you got to do a bit of soul searching to decide essentially that there's no right or wrong answer. And it's a really tricky space to navigate. And I do hope with, you know, legalization or like what happened in Oregon passing measure 109, where now psychedelic assisted therapy is going to be legal, but it won't be only for people with diagnoses. Like if you just want to go for personal growth, like that'll be okay too. And so I'm really looking to Oregon to see how this can play out. I think being above ground will be better to, you know, there'll be less abuses of power in these vulnerable situations. There'll be more accountability. And so I do look forward to seeing how that plays out and how I can help and and maybe using that for a model to move forward.
Yes, please. 40. I love it. I have a subhead in the article that's like, ask as many freaking questions as you need to feel comfortable because it can be so awkward though. Like, I mean, as someone who's like, you know, you know, talk to guides and it's like, oh, it's, it's, you know, I don't know. It's hard. It's like, you got to ask them these really kind of intense questions and you don't want them to like not work with you. I don't know. I think it's a really tricky area and I really feel for people trying to navigate it because it's and as someone I'm kind of anxious you know and I want to deal with my anxiety and I'm like too anxious to like call these people back even sometimes it just gets so much so I really I really hope that things can be a little easier for folks in the future it's really tricky right now Mm -hmm. and also uh, vetting your psychedelic retreat center because I think that you know for someone I've been in the psychedelic retreat space for a long time I've seen a lot of retreat centers pop up I'm starting to do more and more advisory and consulting work for people in the psychedelic retreat space there are codes of ethics there are red flags that you really need to be aware of Um, and and also just to kind of flip the the coin here on the 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 vetting your shaman I mean this is the psychedelic leader podcast. So more and more people are asking me all the time, you know, what do I recommend for stepping into, you know, facilitating work and guide work and which training program should I look at? And, you know, looking at synthesis, they now have a $18,000 training program that looks amazing, but that's a huge barrier to entry for a lot of people. There's, you know, the center for consciousness medicine. I love Francois Bolzat and her mission on this planet. Um, but like, is it enough for people to do the Zendo training or read the trip sitting guide and some of the, the harm reduction material that Zendo has? Um, what, I mean, your book is also a great place to start for someone who wants to start trip sitting is trip sitting a good sort of entry point. I mean, like what, what do you say to the people who are asking you about these questions? I think that the, the first thing you got to do is a lot of psychedelic work on your own or like, you know, personal journey work and like really like, you know, learning about these medicines, learning about your shadow, learning about yourself for like years. So I don't think I'm like, whenever someone asks me that, I'm like, just don't, I don't know. No, it's such a wrong answer, but like, I don't know. I don't have a good answer. I think there's so many people who want to rush into this and I think it's a bad idea. I think that they should slow down. There's no rush. Like, like if this is really moving forward, like, like it, it'll be there. You don't have to like rush into it. If you're only started working with psychedelics, you're it's too early to start facilitating. Like that's a that's a pretty easy one to meet. If you've been working with this a long time and and they really have like it helped you, I mean, is that even a good enough reason also to start? Won't you be like putting your own agenda on the people because it's worked so well for you. And what if it doesn't work for them? I think it's so tricky. I think training is important. Um, but I don't know. I mean, yeah, I think that, yeah, working with psychedelics for a while, I think maybe find a mentor, like find an elder or someone in your immediate psychedelic community who is a facilitator and who can maybe, you know, mentor you in a way, or I know that's like not possible for everyone, but, um, this is something I'm still trying to figure out. Um, Mm -hmm. I love how I'm just asking you like tricky question after tricky, nuanced question. You're you're doing really great. I love it. I struggle with these issues all the time and it's okay. I think it's 
it's important in a psychedelic leadership to like admit when we don't yeah. know, right? Because I don't have all the answers. People want all the answers to me, and I'm just a reporter doing my best. Like this is hard stuff. Like I don't have them, but I think that this stuff's tricky. And yeah, if you feel like it's really easy, like that's I don't know. That, that's a red flag to me. Right. Right. <laughs> I think that we should be wrestling with this stuff yeah. and. And um, it'll come eventually, but um, just don't rush into it, I suppose. Take it slow. Do a lot of reflection and a lot of inner work. And and I do believe the answers will come. Okay. I have another kind of a tough question for you. In terms of harm reduction, because this is your primary wheelhouse that we're talking about here, what do you recommend for someone who's trip sitting or holding space for someone else's trip where their trip starts getting really, really tricky? Maybe they start yelling, maybe they're expressing some kind of, you know, medical emergency, you know, and that kind of scenario. So I'm I'm so curious to get some perspective from you on this. Yeah. So in my book, I have a chapter on trip sitting. And one of the things I recommend for this specific kind of like more serious case stuff is um, to maybe have like a backup trip sitter that you could be chatting with. Like maybe they're not in person or you can call them and you can text them. But like if shit's really hitting the fan and you don't know what to do, like it, it could be really useful to have someone to bounce some ideas off of like, a like, you know, and then you can decide if an ambulance is the right call. I mean, often it isn't, but also if someone's having like an actual heart attack or something like a hundred percent, you want to like save their life. Right. But is it a real heart attack? Is it just anxiety? All these things. If you're not a doctor or EMT or something, it's going to be really hard to know. I think, I mean, I think this is another really tricky area, but yeah, having a backup sitter, perhaps if someone is just like yelling and you're in a private place, like who cares really? Mm -hmm. Like if, you know, the neighbors aren't calling the conscious and thing, maybe let them like, yell it out, dance it out, shake it out. Like these somatic things can be really helpful for people remembering like really traumatizing things or just going through a really particularly challenging part of their journey. And like things like shaking could be like a somatic release, but is it a seizure? Like there's a lot of fine lines here, which is again, why it's like, I don't really feel super comfortable with the underground trip sitting space. It's like, I don't really have a good answer to that. I think a better answer would be like, if we were in a legal regulated environment, then there would be like protocols for this. But right now it's like, yeah, that shit can get dangerous, right? That can get really tricky. Right. Um, But you're also writing a book about it, right? And like making suggestions for people and like educating people about it, which is like, so it makes it, it's just like, you know, responsibility wise, it's not an easy place to, to carry. No, yeah, it's been heavy on me. Like, I mean, but I think the book isn't, there's a chapter on trip sitting, but I guess what I, my real intention with the book was to teach people how to use mushrooms specifically in a safe way. So they don't, maybe they don't need a guide or a facilitator, honestly. Um, You know, my chapter on dose is really long and it's like, you know, I, I recommend folks start really low, maybe a microdose, maybe just a low dose, like, and really get used to mushrooms like before you get to more breakthrough, higher dose, mystical places, because you'll be able to handle it, I think. I think you'll be able to regulate yourself. You'll know what's coming. You'll, you know, once you get familiar with your internal world and with how mushrooms work, I don't personally think you need a guide. 
I think you might want a, maybe a therapist or a coach to help you integrate if that's your integration, if talk therapy is your integration modality of choice. Mm-hmm. But personally, I'm, I'm more of a solar traveler with mushrooms, particularly. I do recognize not all medicines right. are really applicable you know ayahuasca is not something i would recommend folks doing alone for instance um so but for mushrooms specifically and there's so much right now about transformational coaching and all this like mushroom facilitator guide stuff where i'm just kind of out here like i don't really know if that's totally necessary for everyone if you're learning how to work with mushrooms i think personally most folks can learn how to do it on Mm -hmm. their own Yeah. Uh, You know, it's so interesting because like for years and years and years when I was tripping, I'm also a solo tripper or with friends. And I also I've had so many amazing experiences, like really tripping actually all over the world in different amazing (laughs) settings, like on beaches and hiking through jungles. And, and, you know, it was kind of nice before the cat was out of the bag where like no one really had anything to even say about it, whether it was dangerous or not. It's like we all just did it. And it was like, oh, this is how we do it. You know, this is great. And now it's like, oh, a lot more concern, but it's like kind of going back to, it's also sort of a parallel conversation with like birthing in hospitals where now it's like blasphemy Mm. to like give birth in nature where it's like, wait, what have people been doing for thousands of years, you know, before the medical model, people knew how to give birth. The human body knows how to do that. But looking at like, okay, you know, generally psychedelics are actually pretty safe. That being said, There's more mental illness that we're experiencing, especially right now with COVID. So do we have to sort of draw the distinction between quote unquote healthy normals and people who are really suffering from mental illness? I think people just really need to listen to their self, to their gut, right? Like if you really think you need a guide, like, of course, go get a guide. Don't listen to me. (laughs) You don't need one. Right. And I think for the mental illness thing, I, um, I'm, I, uh, I struggle with that because I think that that's not really exactly right. And I think it creates a lot of like stigma and misinformation. Like I also struggle with depression, anxiety, mood, and, um, I, I use mushrooms. Mushrooms aren't my answer. You know, mushrooms help a little, they help perspective. They can help, um, get me out of ruts, help me out of negative um, habits and things that aren't um, really helping me, right? That aren't, um, that are, that are keeping me in my depression rather than helping me out, right? But for me, it's all about self-awareness. It's all about listening to myself. It's all about, and, and often I, I don't take mushrooms because I actually, I think I'm in a, a too bad of a place, um, and I'm just not ready. Um, sometimes it's not that I'm like too depressed. It's often that I'm too stressed out and I have like a lot of work deadlines hanging over me. And I just like, actually, I'm not relaxing like in any area of my life, like until that one article's done or like these heavy things I have on my shoulders. And so I just wait, I wait until the timing feels right. That's not right for everyone. That's just me. But like, uh, that's one way that I just kind of like, um, deal with that aspect or, you know, I have a bit about this in the book. I just, I, you know, a lot of the info from the book was from interviewing just like regular mushroom users. They're not in the medical model. They didn't do all that, you know, they didn't go to Johns Hopkins to take them. They just have been taking them for years at home, like two or three times a year and they love it and it's fine. And a lot of folks 
and I asked them like, you know, is there a bad time to take mushrooms? Some people were like, I mean, yeah, like if, and this is not true for everyone, but like, they were like, yeah, if I'm under a lot of stress, if I just went through a really emotionally difficult, distressing time, like my mom just passed or got diagnosed with cancer, like something like that, like jumping into mushrooms isn't like the answer right away. Like eventually, like, yeah, and you can go in and you can forgive yourself and it can just be a really beautiful like healing experience. But it's often not like a, a cut and dry, like one plus one equals two thing. Like it's often I heal from things that happened many years ago on mushroom trips now and the stuff that's on the forefront is, is still there or, uh, you know, or also like mushrooms for depression. Like, yes, they can they can help, but I I don't like the medical models narrative where like one mushroom trip cures depression. Like that's not been my experience. I think that maybe it can jump people, like jump start them out of ruts. And if you've never like really altered your consciousness before and you take like seven grams of mushrooms at Johns Hopkins for the first time, like, yeah, it's going to change a lot of things, right? But for me, as someone who's been taking like mushrooms for 15 years, acid, like all these things, I'm used to my mind being a little altered and I enjoy it. And it's not this like new thing for me, like it's different. And for me, it's more like, remembering that beautiful space that I reach sometimes on, you know, moderate doses of mushrooms where I do feel really confident and I do feel really like nothing, like, like all my problems are actually kind of like petty little human problems and they're not a very big deal. And this, like, it gives me this more spacious quality to approach the rest of my life with rather than one mushroom chip, like, rewires my brain to a non-depressed brain state like that's not how I experience it Mm -hmm. personally Mm -hmm. Uh, I saw you write an article on lemon teching what the (laughs) hell I mean this is so funny and I've heard it come up now in a few uh clubhouse rooms where people are talking Mm, about lemon teching yeah Dell from Unlimited Sciences was like oh yeah Dell Jolly yeah yeah yeah. I'm a part of the the, their influencer (laughs) circle and he was like check out the double blind article on lemon teching okay what is lemon teching (laughs) Lemon teching is my favorite way to consume mushrooms. It is. But okay, so lemon teching is um, cooking your mushrooms essentially before you eat them. Just like a ceviche or an aguachile is cooked, like you cook the shrimp or fish with lime juice, citric acid. Um, We do this with mushrooms. You basically grind up your mushrooms. So this is my method that I um, report in Double Blind. You grind up your dose of mushrooms and then you cover it in squeezed um, lemon or lime juice um, and let it sit for about 15, 20 minutes, stirring occasionally before consuming. And what this does is it, it cooks your mushrooms a little bit. And so it's a little bit easier on the stomach. Um, mushroom cell walls are different than plant walls, uh, cell walls. They're made out of chitin instead of cellulose. And it's a lot harder for the body to digest. And that's why... That's why, A, you like basically never eat other types of mushrooms uncooked, right? You just really don't get that served anywhere. It's not really good for you. It can give you a stomach ache. And B, that's why, you know, a part of um, why tripping on psilocybin makes people pretty nauseous. So lemon taking can help reduce the nausea and the body load, um, but also 
it strengthens the experience, which is part of why I like it. And it shortens the come up because essentially like a bunch of the work that your stomach had to do, the limes and lemons are doing in your cup. And so you digest it a little faster. Um, There's thought that it turns the psilocybin into psilocin, but there actually is no scientific proof of that. It's a good theory, but we're still waiting. Um, I have some like underground chemists who might be working on proof of that for me, but we're waiting and seeing. Um, But yeah, and so for me as someone, you know, um, I'm a pretty small person. I'm like 110 pounds or something. But for some reason, like uh, mushrooms, I need more than other people that weigh like more than me. I was on mood stabilizers for like 10 years. It might have to do with that. My brain might be a little fried from, um, you know, psychiatric medication. But um, so for me, lemon teching really helps to like get me there where just eating the raw mushrooms, sometimes I just don't have as deep of an experience as I'd like. And lemon teching brings me there. It's really great. It also shortens the come up. Um, for me. And so I find the come up to be just the hardest and most difficult part. And not that there's anything wrong with mushrooms being a little challenging, but I feel like all my anxiety and anxious and angst and like everything is like, it's all in that first like two hours to the buildup. And once I kind of like plateau, I love that phrase. It's from the Shulgans um, and like kind of like arrive at my destination, which is like the full mushroom experience, then that's when I really just feel just that's when like the mystical stuff starts happening and I get a lot of realizations and I kind of lose a lot of my fear and I, I feel just really great. And um, lemon teching helps me get there a little faster too, which is cool. So I'm a pretty big fan. There are some. So what I will say is I wouldn't recommend it for your first mushroom trip. I'd say get used to it first. And like someone described it to me as like lemon teching is like the instant release. Like if you're comparing it to like Adderall or something, and that's the one that kicks in right away and eating mushrooms um, you know, regularly, um, is more like extended release. (laughs) And so it's all a little slower, but I think it is good when you're learning how to take mushrooms and how to journey to start with the regular mushrooms. So you really understand the whole, um, what's the word I want to use, like timetable of it. And then Mm -hmm. you can experiment with other things. I also like making my mushrooms into a tea, I was just going to ask you how how does teching compare to tea? Because I I also really like tea. Me too. And then and 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 specifically, we're talking about. Can you repeat the name of it? An aggravator. Chitin. Yeah, C H I T I N. Um, yeah, it's the cell wall of mushrooms. So yeah, and we our bodies have less enzymes. Like our stomach have less enzymes to digest it. It's just like harder. Some people don't have it at all it's called like chitinase or something. And if you don't have that enzyme, that's like your friend who throws up every time they eat mushrooms, you know, and they really can't hold it down. It's really hard for them. They might not have the enzyme to digest chitin. And so making a tea then to answer your other question is another way to cook the mushrooms a little bit first. So it makes it a little bit easier on the stomach. It's probably not doing the same, like if it's, if, 
if lemon is converting psilocybin to psilocin, I'm not sure if the tea is doing that because I think that was more an action of the citric acid in the limes and lemons that mimic the pH level in your stomach. Hmm. But the hot water of the tea is cooking the mushrooms. And also, and so uh, you digest them a little easier. And the tea also helps it come on a little yeah. faster. It might be a result of just like, more surface area of your mushrooms, mm-hmm. but I think it's also a bit of the cooking as well. And so mm-hmm. tea's another way to, yeah, make it easier, make the come up a little bit shorter, but lemon teching definitely hits a little harder. <laughs> what about combining both of them? Why not make a hot tea with lemon in it? Do you ever do that? Yes. So that's another, that won't work. That won't make it as strong, but definitely a little, and it's a popular choice. Squeeze a little lemon or some lemon peel in your tea Another thing I'll say is folks who really struggle to keep mushrooms down is um, they'll lemon tech and they'll let their mushrooms sit in the lemon for like 15 minutes and then they'll strain the mushroom bits out and either consume just the lemon juice, which now has a psilocybin extract Mm -hmm. in it, or you can make a tea out of that lemon juice. You could pour some hot water over it, some ginger, put a tea bag in there if you like, and kind of create like a hot drink. Um, and that might, um, sometimes when you strain the mushroom bits out, your trip isn't as strong, but if you are really struggling to keep mushrooms down, that's my suggestion. Mm. I, I love this conversation. This is great tips for people. Good, <laughs> me too. <laughs> Gosh, when I was in, uh, I was traveling with my ex-partner in Thailand and we met this other couple kind of on the travel circuit and they were like, drew us a map and were like, go to this far off destination at the end, very end of the road on this very secluded island and just go and find the Thai guy all the way at the end and just ask him for two tickets to the moon. And we were like, game, okay, you know? And then like (laughs) a month later we got there and they're like, just, you know, go further than you think you need to go. It was like, all the way at the end, like totally secluded. And we got there, we saw the Thai guy and we were like two tickets to the moon. <laughs> like tea came out with this like super strong pot of mushroom tea. And we tripped together on just this secluded beach, like no one around. And it was just, just mind blowing. But I, I that's always what I, I go back to that moment of tea. And I mean, I've also done mushroom smoothies and, you know, all the ways. So lots yeah people make uh fresh mushroom smoothies i think paul stamets has written about it and he'll put some lemon in there in the blender and yeah there's lots of different ways to consume mushrooms for sure (laughs) yeah what's your feeling between fresh and dried i don't have as much fresh experience but they are a bit stronger it's cool it's like a different energy i think if you get the chance um definitely try it it's really interesting i think it's really beautiful for sure. Mm-hmm. I've had some some pretty amazing fresh experiences too. Also in Thailand, little Thai man going into the field and cutting off some fresh mushroom and then just consuming. I was like, wow, I'm like wiping off the cow dung off of it. Just like. Oh man, you're making me, that'll be at the top of my list when we can travel more safely. I want to go to Thailand. That sounds like so much Palenque fun. too. You know, I've been, I've spent a lot of, you're in Chiapas. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I'm based in Chiapas. Yeah. Palenque is like the big mushroom location in Chiapas, obviously in Oaxaca, there's a bunch of other different Mm -hmm. ones, but yeah, it's really magical place. The ruins in general without psychedelics, Mm -hmm. very crazy energy, really cool place. Mm -hmm. 
One of the questions I get so much from people too is like the different effects of different strains. Where Where is your own experience with that? Yeah, you know, I don't have a, a huge amount of like information on, on different strains effects. I think that it really has more to do with the individual person and their set and setting than the actual mushroom. Like there's some rumors that like, you know, Amazonian is more, the visuals are more this than golden teachers and this and that. And I don't really, that I don't personally find that to be the case. I think it's more about the individual person. Like I'm often one of these people who takes the same dose of the same strain with someone and I have a totally different experience than them, right? And so I think it's more about the individual than the strain. However, there definitely are stronger strains than others, right? Like, and this is, we're talking about strains of Psilocybe cubensis. Psilocybe cubensis is only one of like over 180 species of mushrooms that contain psilocybin. But because we've been cultivating them at home for the past like 40 years, there's all these different strains in them. And plus there's different strains that occur in nature as well. Just a little putting that out there. But like, for instance, penis envy is one of the strongest strains of philosophy cubensis, right? And people do report that like two grams of penis envy feels more like three grams of golden teachers or like double the dose. And it really depends on the, yeah. I mean, so I, I'd say like, try to get as much strain information as you can again, because it's all in the, underground illegal market who knows if you're actually even getting the truth people might just be like trying to sell you stuff until we have this stuff regulated legalized and regulated we're never really going to know and we're not even going to have like real research on this (laughs) also but um i mean the best i think the best thing you can do is to order uh you know spores of a strain that you do research on and and try to grow them Mm -hmm. yourself yeah and then it's a fun experiment too um, it's a really nice way to cultivate like a pretty deep relationship with them. There's actually no, I feel like I also brew my own beer with my partner. And so I, I already knew how to like sterilize everything, but it's also this really great feeling when you drink a beer that you made yourself and you get a little buzz from it. It's so rewarding. And it's that like times 10 when you eat mushrooms that you grew yourself or weed that you smoked yourself or grew yourself as well. Like, it's such a rewarding and beautiful experience and way to connect with that plant as well. Is there any suggestions for questions that you can recommend to people who are uh, asking the person that's growing their mushrooms? Like, how much does the person who's growing the mushroom influence that batch, do you think? I mean, we're talking about consciousness here. So I know this is like Mm. a slippery question, but any thoughts on that? Well, I will say is what I've learned about like the Mazatec tradition is they would say like a lot and that like the mushrooms will absorb a lot of energy. And and they they used to take uh, a lot of precautions to make sure like no one looked at the mushrooms before they were eaten in ceremony. They were picked in a very ceremonious way. And like people would walk like the long way home so they avoid town and funeral processions because all that kind of energy could influence the mushroom and the experience. Nowadays though, I mean, that's a good question. I think that it's not like other plants where you could be like, where there's pesticides used with this, you know, because usually no, it's, it's very simple. It's vermiculite and brown rice flour and, and it's pretty organic. I'm not really sure what you should ask your grower. I've um, 
It's an interesting question. I don't really have a lot of experience, um, but I suppose all the growers that I have worked with, I know, and I know they're really passionate. So for me, I feel like I don't have any questions to ask them because I know they're like hardcore mushroom people who are so just like kind and um, just really want the best. And they'll like message me to be like, how was it? And I'll be like, it was beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> but I know that not everyone has those kinds of relationships. So I suppose you could ask them what their relationship to the mushroom is and and how they're growing it and, and what they do. But I can imagine because it's all illegal, they might be a little sketched out by all your questions and <laughs> right. maybe not answer them or reply to you. So I think also just kind of like respect their boundaries in a way too. It's a good question. Growing your own would solve it. <laughs> Are you cultivating a microdosing practice too or not so much? I'm not a big microdoser. It makes me pretty nauseous. Um, I'm a pretty sensitive stomach. So any of the benefits that I get are pretty much over, you know, taken by the uncomfortable body feeling that I get. Mm -hmm. And so I haven't really gotten past that. Maybe someday I am experimenting different. Yeah. I wonder if people are like lemon teching for microdosing too, or, you know, if that's even a thing. Maybe I've heard it um, kind of like accidentally doing it and being like, man, that was a really strong microdose. And I was like, well, you might want to take half your microdose if you're going to lemon tech it because it can make it stronger. Right? right. And so, you know, if you're microdosing 0.25 and then you lemon tech it, maybe go down to 0.1 and lemon tech and see how it feels and, and keep, keep titrating. <laughs> right. And tracking. People can track, take notes. I always recommend people take notes. And then it's like, if you really want to be your own experimenter, be a good experimenter and track what you're experiencing and before and after. A hundred percent. We've been saying this in the cannabis space too, for people like getting into it, especially for medical use or CBD, like have a little journal that's just for that, you know, and you keep track every day and keep track of other stuff, the food you're eating, how much sleep you got, what you're doing, because those kinds of things also will affect, you know, how your microdose, your other medicine affects you. You change your body chemistry all the time with the food you put in it and, and all these other, how much exercise you get. And so keeping track of all those quality of life things will really give you a really great idea of like how your body and mind works and responds to these things. And Maybe it's less about the microdose. Maybe you actually find out you need to exercise more or something. I feel like that's what I would end up finding. But right. um, it's a good right. point. And so how much for you do you think, you know, right now in the space, everyone is like intention is so important. And of course, I talk about intention too. You know, it's, it's, but then I'm all, it's Same. like, even can we take that to an extreme, you know, where it's like, can we also just take psychedelics with the intention to like have fun and not worry about, you know, setting an intention? I do that all the time. I've found that when I set really like intense intentions or too many, or I go in with too many goals, I have a really overwhelming and intense trip, you know? And if I set more, my intentions lately, I've just, I just go in with the intention to be open to whatever happens. And I really find that helps to just like accept the experience. And often like I probably have subconscious intentions that I don't like verbalize or write down that come up anyway. And then you learn from them and then you just got to deal with them. But um, I think the healthiest intention is to just go in as a totally open blank slate. Mm -hmm. And I know it's really hard though, but 
you know, I, I've talked about this and I wrote it in the book, but I often just set the intention talking to the mushroom and I just tell them, teach me, I'm listening. Mm -hmm. And they've, they've, they've told me a bunch of stuff, so it's working. Um, what do you think is, is emerging at the forefront of the, of conversation in the psychedelic space right now? Like when we look at so much of the conversation being dominated by depression, PTSD, anxiety, uh, addiction, um, it was, it was so interesting in a clubhouse room. I, I listened to Kevin, who's the founder of horizons. He was talking about this. Like if you are a leader in the psychedelic space, then you're no longer talking about psychedelics and mental illness and, and treating, you know, depression with psychedelics, for example, there's a whole next conversation that's emerging. Um, I'm curious what, if you have any thoughts on what that next conversation is. Oh, I mean, yeah, I'd like to just see, you know, like, how do we reintegrate psychedelics into our Western society, like, A, right? And and how do we kind of, like, move past this medical model? Like, how do we include, like, the medicalization? Like, yes, that's great, and it exists. But how do we really also destigmatize this stuff for personal growth or connecting with loved ones or any of the other many uses. I mean, that's a big part of my mission to help people see, you know, beyond the immediate benefits, like in this very, um, what's the way word, a uh, way that can be calculated and, you know, um, it's going to be harder. I think that a lot of a big chunk of our societies, you know, scared um they're they remember the commercials in the 80s or this is your brain on drugs and you know or they tried it like my parents you know they have all these psychedelic stories and you know taking acid and riding horseback horses and the poconos and like all this crazy stuff and yet when i and when i'm like well what do you think about you know maybe mushrooms now like you know they're going through this whole life transition, they're retiring, they're figuring stuff out. And it really doesn't appeal to them at all. They're like, no, that was a young people thing. That's what you do when you're young. And it was fun. And then they just, I can't see it as anything else. It's just so funny and kind of makes sense of why I do my, I'm having a lot of realizations over here. Um, (laughs) And, and I don't know. And I'm trying to like, like, how do we bridge these gaps? Like, how do we have a narrative where psychedelics can be for fun in a safe way. They can be for personal growth. They can, microdosing can help for productivity, but it can also help for creativity and all these things. Like it's, it's tricky. I'm still trying to figure this out professionally. I don't think the conversation is being had that much. I actually kind of feel kind of alone in it. Honestly, Mm -hmm. I think the conversation is more about the medical model and the benefits and then there's this whole new kind of crazy conversation on the, the patents and the and the the classes and all the money and the capitalism, the investment, the venture capitalists. And it doesn't really interest me at all. I know it's part of the world and it just has to exist, but I don't really want to report on it. I don't mm-hmm. want to spend too much energy on it. But there's a lot of weird conversations I would have never guessed a few years mm-hmm. ago occurring. Um yeah, <laughs> interesting. It was interesting to hear Kevin mention, you know, the forefront for from his perspective was looking at uh, creative thinking, creative problem solving. And I was like, yes, I knew it. I'm like, I'm at the forefront of the conversation, you know, because then it's like at a certain point, you know, then what after you heal your depression, like what's what next? What do you do with your life? 
Yeah, I know. That's a really good point. Yeah. Like what's next? I think creativity is such a big one. And I think that I really hope that psychedelic media picks it up and we have more like creative um, psychedelic content and just kind of moving beyond this, like healing, like healing is so important. Like I know, and I never mean to belittle anyone's experience by like trying to move the conversation forward, but um I'm excited. I'm excited to see what you do in this space. I mean, I think inadvertently I've been using psychedelics for creativity for like a decade mm-hmm. and it, it would be cool to see like what other tools there are or wait, like, you know, practices to pair with my psychedelic practice that enhance my creativity or, or help me, you know, in, in these ways as a professional creative, like, uh, I'm, I'm always looking for hacks and tips and, you know, ways to just write for longer or something. So (laughs) (laughs) I'm excited. I think it's cool. It's, yeah, it's great. I'm here for it. (laughs) I kind of want to end just like on a full circle, uh, coming right back to the beginning. Um, any advice for, for people who are stepping out and sharing their personal experiences more publicly, whether that's, you know, in a sort of psychedelic leadership or influencer, or, you know, a lot of people are starting to really share more and more of their psychedelic experiences, especially on social media. Um, Just like some wisdom from what you've learned along the way and anything that you want to share for, for people just to really help I guess like what I'm trying to point to is like, how do we really help hold space for the movement in in the best way possible, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's tricky. I would say, um, be honest, um, and don't glorify it. Like it doesn't have to be this thing where you like proved something to the universe, right? Like I think the best kind of, coming out stories are just just honest and frank and you I think it's important to also include your mistakes right like we can talk about being open about drug use but if we only talk about the positive stuff I think we're doing um, everyone listening a disservice and we should talk about the bad stuff that happened too when we took it too far or you know there's so many cases in psychedelics and other drug use where it's not all glittery and great and beneficial. So I think, you know, keep it balanced, be honest and um, have a community where other people are out too. So you can, you know, have people to bounce these ideas off of. I think it's important before you're declaring them, you know, to an audience with no experience, um, gives you more perspective and then you can help share things in the safest way i think and yeah and just encouraging everyone who is stepping into the space and also you know psychedelic journalism and just trying to encourage everyone to move with as much truth integrity honesty willingness to portray all sides of the story anything that you want to close on this is such a great chat. I just want to thank you for having me on the show and considering me part of psychedelic leadership. That's really kind and um, just trying to do my best. So thank mm. you so much. I really like this conversation too. I feel like we're just like catching up, girlfriends catching up, being like, how do you like to consume your <laughs> mushrooms? 
Have you tried yeah. love and take it? That was literally me and my friend Jess like three weeks ago. Like, I went to Masuta and I had five weeks of I really like anyway. it. I was like, this, that was my favorite part of the conversation. I was like, oh yeah, mushroom tea. I love mushroom tea. Oh, how do you like to make your mushroom tea? Oh, lemon. That, that makes sense. Oh, that's great. <laughs> so good. No, thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Hi, friends. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode of the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast. If you've been enjoying the show, I would so appreciate it if you could share it with a friend or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or feel free to leave me a review on iTunes. If you'd like to get in touch, please feel free to reach out through my website, livefreelauraD.com or connect with me on Instagram at livefreelauraD. I'm also on Clubhouse and you can find me at Live Free Laura D. I'm hosting weekly rooms on all topics related to microdosing and to psychedelic leadership and so much more. And I'd love to connect with you there. All right. So I'm going to leave you off with this song called Gift by my dear friend, Brandon Mills. Once again, my name is Laura Dawn and you're listening to the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast. Until next time. is sacred so love the ones you're with cause all of it can be taken as fast as it's given oh offer up your love always be grateful every breath is a gift fill up your soul with bliss everybody needs some loving Everybody loves a gift So when you find your own Oh, give it, keep giving Everybody needs some loving Everybody loves a gift So when you find your own Oh, give it, keep giving La-da-da-da-da La-da-da-da-da Life can be lonely Sometimes love hurts the worst But what broke you down yesterday Is what gives today its worth Focus on what's lovely When we don't see eye to eye I know you're trying, girl Just remember, so am I Cause everybody needs some loving And everybody loves a gift So when you find your own Oh, give it, keep giving Keep giving La da da da
sacred So love the ones you're with Cause all of it can be taken As fast as it's given Offer up your love Always be grateful Every breath is a gift 